Hello, everybody. I want to welcome you to tonight's Zoom session as we begin a new Bible study, eight-week Bible study with Brian Young in the book of Esther. And so, Brian, we're great to be doing this with you, and we're thankful to, to have this a part of, of the ministry here at Faith this summer and um, unique. I don't think we probably would have done this had we not walked through the season that we have. Um, but thank you for being a part of this, Brian. We appreciate you being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. So thank you. Well, before we begin, I want to start with a word of prayer, and then we're just going to hand this over to Brian, and uh, then he'll lead us here in week one of the book of Esther. So let's go ahead and pray to begin. Father, we thank you so much for this evening and this time together in your word. We thank you for Brian and his ministry. We thank you for his gifting, his calling. And Lord, tonight as he leads us, we pray, Father, for an anointing upon his teaching, the things that you've placed on his heart to share. We ask for your grace, your blessing now. Open our hearts as we open the word and guide and lead us tonight. And we thank you for this now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, we are definitely going to be going verse by verse through the book of Esther. So I'm going to encourage everyone to, uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and have that open. Um, I will basically be uh, having a lot of it up here as well. But uh, at least for me, when I do these kind of things, I, I like to take notes and underline and be able to kind of mark up a few things so that it is something that I'll be able to remember later. Um, I'm kind of excited about this because uh, as I was putting this stuff together, I was uh, just learning about Esther in ways that I had never seen this book before. And uh, I think that the more I've studied it, the more it shocked me that I haven't seen it in this way. So hopefully a lot of you guys will be blessed by this as well and be able to look at this book completely differently than what you might see at face value. And so we'll kind of uh, talk about that as we go. But for now, we're just going to jump into it here. So um, Esther, there's a few things here just to give you some basic background to understand. Um, it's called the Megillah by the Jews uh, in Hebrew. And so if you ever hear the word Megillah or the Jews are, you know, uh, reading the Megillah, they're, they're reading Esther. And they do this every year around the time of Purim, which was just a, a couple months back here. They are commanded to celebrate this festival, but not like all the other festivals like Passover or um, uh, Tabernacles or anything like that, because Leviticus 23 is where we see them being commanded to take all these other celebrations. But this one isn't commanded in any of God's law. It is something that is given to us in the book of Esther in chapter 9, verse 20. And here's where we see that. It says, Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. Uh, so this is where they get the command to do so. Uh, years ago, I happened to be in Israel during the time of Purim. And it was a very fascinating thing to see at the time. I really didn't know what was going on, but you could really compare it much to our Halloween without all the ghosts and goblins. But people would be dressed up and they were dancing in the street and it was a big uh, celebration for them. And part of that is because of this. Now, uh, there are other little traditions that they will do as they celebrate this. Um, maybe I'll talk more about that later, but oftentimes when they read the Megillah, when they come up with the word Haman, all the kids are going to be screaming and, ah, to drown out the name of Haman. Uh, they'll make little um, kind of pastries that are called Haman's ears. And so anything to basically put down Haman, but to elevate Mordecai. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go as well. 
But what I want you to see as well is that this is a festival that is a time not only of fasting, because as you're going to see in the story that they fasted because they were about to be destroyed. It's also a time of feasting because when they were about to be destroyed, God steps in and delivers them. And it really is a great remembrance of God's deliverance, not Mordecai's, but God. And they always gave credit to God for this deliverance. So something kind of to think about as we go through this. Um, you can kind of see here in verse 22 that he wrote them to observe the day of feasting and the joy enjoy and giving presents and food to one another, gifts to the poor. So because of this, this is also something that they will often do during this time to celebrate this festival. They'll give gifts and have people over. And it, like I said, it is a celebration because it is a picture of God's deliverance. And ultimately, I want you to remember that because this is a very prophetic book and it is one that we should take encouragement, hope, and joy in as well, because not only has Jesus delivered us from sin, but there is a deliverance on a day-to-day -day basis for us, and especially when it comes to things like COVID or whatever. We can put our hope and trust in his deliverance. We don't need to look to the government. We don't need to look to our own uh, independence, but we look to God for deliverance. And so that's basically where we're at on, on that. So there are some interesting things before we get into this book that I think are also worth mentioning, and that is this. The name of God is not found anywhere in this book at all. Not Elohim, not Yahweh, not Jehovah, not God, nothing. And that's been kind of a mystery for some people. As a matter of fact, it causes some people to question whether or not this really should even be in the Bible. But even with that, I would say for the most part, there isn't a scholar out there that denies that this should be in the Bible. Um, it's basically is very close to the book of Song of Solomon in this regard, because the book of Song of Solomon, it only mentions God's name once. And it's only in a shortened version of the word Yahweh, as it's said, Yah. And that's it, one time in the whole book of Song of Solomon. And so just because God's name is not in this book doesn't mean that it isn't about God. It doesn't mean that it's not inspired or anything like that. And again, scholars agree. But uh, sometimes uh, it bothers people that you don't see God's name in there. Well, what you're going to see is that you are going to see God, but in more of a parable type way. And this book is very prophetic. <laughs> excuse me, it is a, um, I would say, almost as prophetic as the book of Revelation when you understand it properly. So uh, keep that in mind as we go, and I'm going to explain that as we go as well. Now, another kind of strange thing is there are words found in this book that are not found in any other book of the Bible anywhere. Uh, it's very difficult to understand in some cases because many of the words are Persian words that are basically have been transliterated into the Hebrew. And the word parim, as an example, is a Persian word, meaning lots. So there's some of those kind of little hidden things that are in there that make it uh, a little more interesting. And I'm gonna talk more about that later when we get to the Greek Septuagint and its translation of this book versus what you probably have in your Bible. Um, because the Greek Septuagint, which is simply the Greek translation of the Old Testament, has a much thicker book of Esther. There's a lot more in that one than what we have in our typical Bibles. Now, the Greek Septuagint as well, just to kind of remind you, that is the Bible. As a matter of fact, if you look at the quotes in the New Testament, about one out of every two quotes are coming from the Septuagint whether it be the disciples quoting it or Jesus quoting it. So the Septuagint is a book that was considered to be scripture, uh, inerrant, when it came to uh, God's word, even in the time of Christ. So uh, when I talk about the Septuagint, we're not getting into some of those more uh, questionable things. 
The other thing here is this is also one of the, the few books that was not found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, or with the Dead Sea Scrolls, I should say. So very significant there as well. We don't know why it wasn't there, but it's just it's one that wasn't found. Um, another little kind of tidbit that's interesting is the fact that uh, the word Esther is not her Hebrew name. Uh, we, we see her real name, as scripture is going to show us, is Hadassah. But she's called Esther throughout the scriptures. That is not a Hebrew word, but yet today we kind of always talk about Esther. If somebody said Hadassah, you may not even put two and two together to find that that is actually talking about Esther. But her name, Esther, is a word that means star. And that is also very prophetic because Esther is a picture of righteousness, a picture of the church, as you're going to see. And in Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, it says, Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And so this is significant because it's pointing us to righteousness. So that's why I believe her name. Esther is used in scripture for us to think of righteousness, the star. Uh, so um, we'll, again, I think, make that more clear as we go through. As far as when this book is written, there's very little controversy about that. It's somewhere between 460 to 350 B.C. Some will go into the 200 B.C.s, but they're, they're on the fringe. That's not very many who will say that. And so, uh, again, I would say that Bible scholars are pretty much saying this is on a, an authentic book. As far as who wrote it, that is a mystery as well. I can tell you that some of the ancient rabbis, the Jewish rabbis, they believed it was Mordecai who wrote this book. As a matter of fact, that's what Clement of Alexandria, a Christian man, said. He said it was uh, Mordecai who wrote it. But we also have others uh, like Rabbi Azarias. He says that it was written by the priest Jehoiakim. Um, others say that uh, Ezra is the author. So, uh, some in the, the Jews in the synagogue said that it was something that um, the men of the synagogue had put together. But for the most part, I would say that Mordecai is one of our best guesses, that he is the one that put this together. So those are some of the facts that, uh, just to kind of get out of the way as we open up into this book. So let's get started here in chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes. Now I must have here the um, NIV somehow. Normally I put up the New King James, but sometimes as I'm pasting this in it, it switches on me for whatever reason. And uh, so we hear, see the word Xerxes here. I do not believe that is the right name. It should be Ahasuerus. And um, the word Xerxes, when it's put here in the NIV, this is because of historical criticism that that name is there. What that means is, based on the timing of Esther, based on what we see in history, they think that Xerxes should have been the king. Therefore, they say that Ahasuerus must be Xerxes, so they put Xerxes in there. Um, I, I don't agree with that. So uh, I think it'll probably get switched back to the New King James here at some point. Like I said, I think I just have a, uh, a slip here. But anyway, this is happening during that time of this Persian king, and he ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. Now, you can see on this map here that I've got a little black circle. That is basically where Susa is today. It, is, it borders right on the uh, border there of Iran. And it's a huge empire, that dotted line that you can see that will go all the way around there shows you that this was a mighty empire. You might say a world empire. It was indeed a world superpower. And it goes all the way down to Africa. The point is, is that this king is awesome. He is powerful. He is mighty. And that's what this ver opening verse is trying to get you to understand. 
that this is incredible. He rules over 127 provinces, stretching a vast distance. And again, at this time in the world, you know, when we don't have internet and highways like they, like we have today, this is pretty, pretty impressive. It goes on though, and it says this, at that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. Now, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and media, the princes, the nobles of the princes were present. And so here I have another map that shows you modern day Iran, and you can see how Susa is just right on the border there. And today it's, it's, it's called Shusha in uh, the, the modern city today. So this is an area that is still around, and we basically could, could go and see some of these places even to this day. So we've established kind of the area, the timing, the author, and now we're going to get into the meat of things here. It says um, in verse 3, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles. We read that in officials, the military leaders, the Persian media, the princes, the nobles of the provinces were present. Verse 4. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. Now, we see the king here holding this wonderful, huge banquet. What's the purpose? To show his splendor to the world, to let people see how mighty and majestic he is. And he's being very generous in, you know, uh, basically throwing a party for so many people and for so long. But for 180 days, he's displaying this vast wealth. Now, I'm going to kind of let you in on just a little sneak peek here. King Xerxes, or Ahasuerus here, is going to be a picture of God, okay, Elohim. And what we see is that this is going to be a picture of his kingdom. And his kingdom is wonderful. It is majestic. He rules the world. Now, I don't know if this has any significance, I, I was trying to figure out why 180 days. And bottom line is I don't know. I just have some possibility to throw out there. We see 180 days is six months. It's a half a year. And so you've got six months of time. I don't know. Usually months aren't compared to the days. You know, like in, in Revelation, we see that a year is oftentimes a representation of a day okay so not usually a month but if so you've got six months and then at the end of the six months he's going to throw this seven day party the seven day feast well what's fascinating about that is if you picture that all of time and i'm not going to get into all the details of this but basically we have six thousand years and then on the seventh is supposed to be that rest that Hebrews 4 talks about. So whether that's this pictured or not, I don't know, but uh, just something to think about. What I want you to see here as well is that there's the splendor and glory of his majesty. Again, this is the purpose of throwing this big, huge party. He is the focus. He is the one that everybody is looking to. And so he's giving this banquet that's going to last seven days. There is, uh, that, to a Jewish mind, they're going to make this, they're going to think, oh, this is uh, Passover, because Passover is a seven-day festival. Now, there are some fall festivals as well that will do that, but typically today, when you think of a seven-day feast, you're thinking of Passover. That's going to be a little bit more important here as we go. So, continues in verse 6, it says, the garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and uh, purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on the mosaic pavement, uh, porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. So it's basically describing something that must be beyond breathtaking. Absolutely 
beautiful. And so again, the kingdom, God's kingdom is breathtaking. It's beautiful beyond compare. Continues in verse seven. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave banquet a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. So, again, the king is being very generous. Its liberality is being displayed. He is blessing the people in all kinds of ways. And at the same time, we see Queen Vashti. And Queen Vashti is also throwing a banquet. Okay, so there's two banquets going on here at this time. In verse 10, on the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him. Mahumen, Bizda, Harbona, Bigtha, Abaktha, Zether, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. So here is kind of where we're going to start getting into some things that are going to help identify a little bit of what's going on. Notice there he has seven eunuchs or seven servants that minister before him. That's going to be important as well. And it is now on the seventh day after those, you know, the 180 days, you're having this seven day feast. On that last day, he wants to present his bride. Now we've probably all heard because some commentaries have said this to try and make sense of what's going on. Why Queen Vashti would disobey. They're trying to say that she was being paraded or he wanted to parade his wife naked before the kingdom. Honestly, I do not believe that is the case, especially when we see the purpose of what's going on here in the book of Esther and the, the prophetic aspect of it. There is absolutely nothing to indicate that this is what he was going to do outside of the fact that Vashti refuses. And this is not something that would have been typically done with your wife of that time even. So I don't believe that what we've often heard is happening is really what's going on here. I believe that he is simply wanting to present his bride, somebody he is proud of, somebody he wants to lift up and magnify and say, look, this is my bride. Now to support this idea, I'm going to take you to that Greek Septuagint. And like I said, there's a lot more in the Septuagint than what we have in the Masoretic text. And Josephus, as a matter of fact, gives a very lengthy commentary on the book of Esther. And he, too, relies heavily on the Greek Septuagint text and gives absolutely no indication that she's uh, going to be paraded around naked. That's not what's happening. Here's the Hebrew Masoretic in Esther chapter 1 verse 11. It says that the king wanted to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles for she was lovely to look at. That's all we get. But when you go to the Septuagint, it says this, that the king wanted to escort the queen to him in order to proclaim her as queen and to place the diadem, that's a crown, on her head, and to have her display her beauty to all the governors and the people of various nations, for she was indeed a beautiful woman. So it seems that he wants to crown her and put her on display for her beauty and her majesty, in a sense. Now, that is important because when you see the prophetic picture here, as I've said, we, we know that the king is a picture of God Almighty. That means Vashti is going to be a picture of, well, the church, in essence. Okay? Now, with that in mind, I think this is going to make a lot more sense. But before we get too far into it, let me here show you 
a Jewish perspective of what's going on here. It says on the mystical level, King Ahasuerosh, that would be what you've been seeing as Xerxes, alludes to God, the king of the world. The Midrash reads the name Ahasuerosh as an acronym for Achrit Verashit Shiloh, alluding to the one whom the end and the beginning are his. In other words, even the Jews see that King Ahasuerosh here is supposed to be a picture of God Almighty. Okay, so I'm not just kind of pulling this stuff out of my hat. This isn't stuff that I'm making up. This is the Jewish picture. When they read the book of Esther, they're seeing that the king is God Almighty. Therefore, Vashti is the church. Not the church of today, but a rebellious church. Those who refuse God's call. In Esther chapter 1, verse 12, it says, When the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Now, if we only had the book of Esther, maybe it would be hard to sell this point. But this is a picture that is seen throughout Scripture over and over again. We see two women. Here in the book of Esther, you're going to see Vashti and Hadassah, or Esther, the, the, the star, the righteous one. Okay, I don't think it's an accident that she's called the star to separate her from Queen Vashti, showing her that she is righteous, kind of indicating in some ways that Vashti is not righteous. We see people like Ruth and Orpah, okay, that Ruth uh, is the, the one that follows God, Orpah is the one that does not. In Proverbs 8, there's two women, okay, one is righteous, one is wicked. Revelation has two women. Okay, one in chapter 12 gives birth to righteousness. Okay, Israel gives birth to Jesus. And the other one is this vile, wicked uh, whore of Babylon, basically. And so over and over, even the 10 virgins, we see five are, you know, good, five are not. We're seeing this picture of two women being compared. And I believe that's the picture that you're going to see here in Esther, and that's going to become more and more clear as we go. In verse 13, it says, Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matter of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. And then it gives these same seven princes again, the seven nobles of Persia and Media, who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti? He asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. So, a couple of things here that I want to point out. Seven nobles that are men, these are men that are closest to the king. They have special access to him. This is also a picture that we see throughout scripture where there are, uh, with God, seven that are before him. As an example, we can look in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 12. We see John describing that God is sitting in the center. He is the king, and there are seven golden lampstands that are surrounding him. And he goes on to explain that those, what those seven lampstands are. These are the seven churches of God. He also sees that there are seven, he has seven stars in his hand. And it says these are the angels of those seven churches. And so we're seeing that in God's presence, he is surrounded by seven churches, seven angels, seven servants, you might say. Somebody who has special access and are closest to him. And so here again, we have a king with seven uh, princes that are close to him. Now, this is not just in Scripture that we see this. Uh, there's a book of Tobit, again, an apocryphal book. I don't put this in canon, but it's just interesting to see these same kind of connections. It says, I was sent to you to test you, and at the same time, God sent me to heal you and Sarah, your daughter-in-law. I am Raphael, one of the seven angels who stand ready and enter before the glory of the Lord. So even here, we're just seeing that there's seven who stand before God. And therefore, I think when it's talking about these seven princes, 
we have to ask, why is the word of God telling us this? Why is it putting it there as a flag for us to notice? Um, why would we care that there are seven princes? It's all important. And that's kind of what I want you to see. Well, as we continue here in 2 Corinthians 3.12, it says this, Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. And you may say, well, what does this have to do with Esther? Well, I think it has everything to do. And here's why. What it's saying is even today, when we read the Old Testament, there is a veil that remains unless you know Christ. When we come to Christ, there is a veil that is lifted, and we can see the Old Testament under a new covenant light. And this is really exactly what Yeshua did on the road to Emmaus. As he was on the road to Emmaus, what did he do? He explained to those disciples from the law and the prophets, from the Old Testament, the things that were concerning him. In other words, he was removing the veil that in Christ, you can now see in the Old Testament, Jesus everywhere. And I think that this is a verse that we really need to take to heart because when we read the Old Testament, we need to be looking for Christ everywhere. And I think too often when we read the book of Esther, what we're looking for is a story, a bedtime story, a neat historical event, but we aren't seeing Christ pictured perfectly. I think what you're going to see as we continue in this book, that as we remove that veil and we look for Jesus in this book, we aren't going to be able to go two verses without seeing a very prophetic picture that, at least for me, it was mind-blowing, absolutely mind-blowing. And so uh, we want that veil removed. We want to be looking for Christ. And this is then how you will see the truth of what the book of Esther is talking about. So in verse 12, it, kind of going back there, it says, when the attendants delivered the king's command for her to come and before the king, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Now, this is going to be interesting as we look at the picture of what other scriptures tell us, because Esther is going to full, fall perfectly in line with that. Okay. This is relevant for a number of reasons. What happens when those who God invites refuse to come to him, refuse to come to Christ, those that the Father draws to Jesus? Well, he's going to burn with anger. And I'm going to show you scripture that is going to show this exact same scenario is going to happen in the future as well. Okay? And by the way, this is kind of also relevant for today. Iran, which is basically modern-day Persia, is still fighting against Israel today. That, that ancient battle continues. But anyway, uh, moving on here, I want to show you the parable of uh, the kingdom of heaven here where we see the wedding banquet. And this is found in Matthew chapter 22. We're going to refer to this uh, as we go through this book, because I believe this is basically taking the book of Esther and putting it in a little uh, cliff note type thing here. One of those uh, Esther for dummies kind of booklets, you know. This is what's happening in the book of Esther right here. Let's read it. It says, Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Now, interestingly, here we have King Ahasuerus, and he's preparing a seven-day banquet. Same amount that it takes for a wedding banquet as well. Passover, uh, that seven, as I said, should bring people's minds to Passover. Passover is kind of a picture of a wedding banquet as well. It's, it's the wedding banquet of the Lamb. And so we're, we're having the same thing going on. It says he sent his servants as king the king Ahasuerus sent the servants to get Vashti, those seven nobles, to those who had been invited, Vashti, to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. 
Then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. So if you just stop to think about it a little bit, this is exactly, as I said, what we are seeing in the book of Esther taking place. It continues in verse five. It says this, but they paid no attention and went off one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. So, just like in Esther, when those that were invited, Vashti, did not come, he was furious. Here in this parable of the kingdom of heaven, we see that God invites people. Those that don't come, it causes him to become enraged. Then what does he do? He goes out and he sends people, his servants, to the street corners, invites anybody to come into this banquet. What is Vashti uh, or King Ahasuerus going to do? He's going to send out and look for another bride, as you will see when we continue here. So let's go back to Esther chapter 1, verse 13. It says this, since it was customary for the king to consult experts of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Here we see these seven men again, the seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. So, Verse 15, I think, is very important, and it's going to become even more important later, but for now, just a little sneak peek. How is Vashti judged? According to the law. This is exactly how God is going to judge us. If we don't have Christ, he's going to look at you, and he's going to say, you broke this command, this command, this command. You see, it's the commandments, the commands of God that will condemn us. Only in Christ, when he looks at us, he sees the blood of Jesus, and there is no condemnation anymore because he fulfilled that for me. Without Christ, I'm condemned by it. And so this is the, the position that Vashti is finding herself in at this point. In verse 16, then Mamukin replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women. So they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persians and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Okay, again, we're seeing this being very important because uh, Mamukin here, one of the seven, is going to have, who, who has special access to the king. He knows that women are going to be empowered by Vashti's disobedience. And you know, this is exactly what we see happening in the church today. We see other people being empowered by the disobedience of others in the church. You know, you might have somebody uh, say to you, have you watched this on TV? And you're like, oh, wow, they watched that on TV? Well, they're really, I mean, that's an elder of our church. If he watches it, it must be okay for me to watch it, right? Just uh, examples like that, that when we see disobedience, God has told us that it should be dealt with. This is one reason why church discipline needs to be practiced, because without church discipline, it's the leaven that just causes it to grow and grow and grow. Rebellion is infectious, and it's a kingdom killer. And they knew this. They knew it. 
this Mamukin was a very wise man and he understood that this had to be stopped. Well, Ecclesiastes 9.18, just another verse here that just kind of shows some wisdom. It says, wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. And this is why they understood that Vashti had to be dealt with. Now, I know that sometimes people look at this and they think that this king was some male chauvinist pig and Queen Vashti was doing right and that poor woman. That's not the picture that's being portrayed here in scripture. What's being portrayed is that disobedience to God, our king, is contagious and it will spread and it's not allowed. It should not be tolerated in the churches that we should practice church discipline. This is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it even talks about that Christians, if anyone calls himself a brother, a believer, that is sexually immoral, an idolater, or a whole list of sins, it says, with such a person, do not even eat. Don't hang out and chum around with those kind of people because it's infectious. It'll spread like a disease. 1 Corinthians 15.33 also says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. We can go example after example. A little leaven will affect the whole lump. And so, but it should cause us to reflect as well on our own actions, our own words, to say, what kind of message am I sending to those around me? Am I being a good example? Because scripture says that my behavior is going to influence others, you know, and, and likewise women, how you treat your husbands is sending a message to other women. I know I'm very thankful for, uh, we used to have a Bible study back in Oregon and there were some different couples that would come and one couple, they always bickered this husband and wife, and that wife would let that husband get away with nothing and was always putting him down, but it was always in a joking way. And I remember my wife just really connected with her and, and, and liked her a lot. But one of these other couples, the woman came up to her and just said, hey, I know that you get along and she's a wonderful lady, blah, blah, blah. I don't remember all the words, but it was just saying, be careful. Be careful because that's not really what God says, how we should you know, treat our husbands. And uh, she was always so grateful to that woman for saying that because it really made her reflect on what she was doing and how it looked to others. So again, it's not just women either, men also. How do we treat our wives? Other men are watching that. So just a, a little lesson that we can learn from that. As we continue here though in Esther, let's get to verse 19. It says, therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed. So notice that these laws, you can't change them. Is that not what it is with God's law as well? We cannot change God's law. Okay? It is the ultimate authority and man has no power to change it. Once he said it, it's gospel truth. It cannot be repealed. Now, some people might say, well, didn't Jesus repeal the law? No, he didn't. He fulfilled the law okay, in our state, but he never got rid of it. He never repealed it. It goes on that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. So again, we're reminded of that parable, the wedding banquet in Matthew 22. When those who are invited do not come, it's given to someone else who is better than she. Go out to the street corners. Invite anybody that you can find, anybody that's willing to come. And so her royal position, what was intended for Vashti, is going to be given to another. And that's what we see with the rebellious church. We see in Scripture even, bottom line, it says in the Old Testament, quoted in the New, that all day long I held my hand out to a disobedient and obstinate people. You know, Hosea, I, I will call those who are not my people. They will be called my people. Uh, over and over, we can give examples of really even the Gentiles being welcomed in when Israel had rejected the truth. Now, that is not to say by any means that 
that God has rejected Israel forever. But I'm just saying there is a picture of a disobedient and an obedient church. We have become that obedient church. We have become Israel as we've been grafted in to that covenant. Second Chronicles 30 is another kind of thing that uh, I think melds this together to show that there's something to this. In Second Chronicles 30, we see something very similar happening in those days that we see that we're reading about right here in the book of Esther, where there's going to be a seven-day festival, basically Passover. And again, Passover is a picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Look what happens here. Hezekiah sent word to all Israel and Judah and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh, inviting them to come to the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem and to celebrate the Passover. So just like King Ahasuerus here has sent out to all these provinces, inviting them to come to, to the throne room, to the, the king's throne for this wonderful festival. It says, the God of Israel, the king and his officials and the whole assembly in Jerusalem decided to celebrate the Passover in the second month. At the king's command, couriers went throughout Israel and Judah with letters from the king, from his officials, which read, people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that, we may, that he may return to you who are left, who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Now, just some historical background, what's going on here is, Assyria has come in and captured the 10 tribes primarily of Israel and has assimilated them in, scattered them throughout the world. And so those that are left, those that escaped, he's saying, return now to me, follow my commands. Because uh, these people have been growing up in a culture that just wasn't godly. It wasn't following God the way God told them to follow him. So he's calling them back. He's saying, repent, come to me. He goes on, do not be like your parents and your fellow Israelites who were unfaithful to the Lord, the God of their ancestors, so that he made them an object of horror, as you see. Don't be stiff-necked as your ancestors were. Submit to the Lord. Come to his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever. Serve the Lord your God so that his fierce anger will turn away from you. So notice, these people have turned away from him. And what's the king's response? What God's response? He's angry, fierce anger, just like King Ahasuerus. If you return to the Lord, then your fellow Israelites and your children will be shown compassion by their captors and will return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate. He will not turn his face from you if you return to him. The couriers went from town to town in Ephraim and Manasseh as far as Zebulun, but the people scorned and ridiculed them. So what I want you to see is what is the result here? Well, there are some that do come, but the couriers, they go out. They go out to the street corners, invite everybody you know, just like in Matthew 22. But there are those that what do they do? They only ridicule and mock. And this is exactly what Vashti does. This is a picture of that disobedient church. This is also what we see in Matthew 22, that there were those who refused to come first. And then he says, go out, invite more. So you've got the disobedient and the obedient, kind of the two women again being pictured here. But the promise is, is that you're going to have peace if you return and you come to this seven-day celebration, the Passover. Okay, same exact thing happening in Esther and in Matthew 22. So it's a recurring story in scripture. And when you have that, it should make your ears perk up saying there's something deeper here than just a historical event. But some do heed the call, as we see here in verse 7 of chapter 30. Do not be like your parents and your fellow Israelites who are unfaithful, right? Nevertheless, it says in verse 11, some from Asher, Manasseh, Zebulun, humbled themselves and went to Jerusalem. Also in Judah, the hand of God was on the people to give them unity of mind to carry out what the king and his officials had ordered, following the word of the Lord. So nevertheless, some heed the call. This is going to be what Esther is going to be a picture of. 
the obedient church, those that are going to humble themselves, as Esther clearly is going to do, and follows the commands of the kings, follows the word of the Lord. So when we get to verse 20 here in Esther then, going back to Esther, it says, Then, when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands. From the least to the greatest, the king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as Mamukin proposed. So when Vashti is removed, it sends a message to encourage others. This is exactly what church discipline is about. We, we see in Corinthians as well, he says about this woman who, uh, or this man who has been sleeping around, you know, in, in some just terrible ways. It says, remove him from the presence. Hand this man over to Satan so that his soul may be saved on the last day. In other words, hand him over so that not only is he going to learn his lesson, but others will also learn from this as well. So even this discipline is to be uh, a message to others to encourage them to submit and to give honor. It induces a good fear. There is a good fear that we have lost in our society today. A fear of God that's supposed to be there. You know, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And without the fear of God, everybody's doing what we think is right. Worshiping God the way we think we should worship him and so on. And, and it creates a mess. Honestly, I think that, you know, we've been seeing all these riots going on here in, in all across the country, really. And I personally think that the church is partly to blame for this. I'm seeing many Christians, and I'm probably opening up a, a, a bag of worms here, but bottom line is I even see Christians supporting the, the, this Black Lives Matter. Well, I'm all for black people, white people, red people, anything in between. It isn't about that. If you do any research on Black Lives Matter, that's not what this is about. But people support it because they don't understand uh, what's really happening. And so Christians are thinking of this on an emotional level, not a biblical, spiritual one. See, the Bible also says that you want to be free from fear of the one in authority. Do what is right, and he will commend you. Don't break the law. It's not going to be a problem. I don't care what color you are. And so what we see is that today in many churches, we have, we've given people what they want. What do you want to see in church? What, what would you like? And so people are going to church to get what they expect out of it, to be entertained, to feel warm and fuzzy, to get their nice coffee, to get their social time in. Okay, but we're supposed to be going to church to give praise and glory and honor to God. It isn't about us, but this, when we've made it about that, now in our society, Christians can only think emotionally and experientially. And so we're not thinking with logic and reason and Bible, we're thinking, what makes me feel good? What do I think? And this is to be a lesson to these people that, no, you can't do what you just want. We need to submit to authority. Okay? Authority is important. And the Bible says that he does not allow a woman to have authority over a man. What they're doing here is exactly what Scripture, the law of God, says. There's nothing un unscriptural about this command. Now, I don't think today, not only do we not have time, but that's not the point of this. I'm not trying to get into, hey, women, you need to submit to your, your husbands. And Yes, we should. You, you should do that. But men also need to love their wives. We understand that. That's not the point of tonight's message. But in this context, it is an aspect of, of women being submissive to their husbands and that it's an important part of scripture ephesians 6 even talks about that as well there is a power in the fear of of god and, and it's something that we need to take to to heart deuteronomy 31 9 kind of talks about this fear so moses wrote down this law and he gave it to the levitical priests and to all the elders of israel then moses commanded them at the end of every seven years in the year for canceling debts during the festival of tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord, your God, at the place he will choose, you shall read this law before them in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and children, 
and the foreigners residing in your towns so they can listen and learn to fear the Lord your God and follow carefully all the words of this law. See the power of the fear of God? They were to go home and read the word of God. Read this law. And what happens when we read the word of God? It instills a good fear of God in our hearts and in the hearts of our children. And this is why it's so important for us to be in the scriptures. But anyway, moving on. We've just got a couple of slides left here to wrap up. Proverbs 16, 6 says, In mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity. And by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. See, it's a, there's a healthy fear we are to have. Acts 10, 34, Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts every nation, the one who fears him and does what is right. So it's not just an Old Testament thing. Proverbs 14, 27 says, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. And so so important for us to understand that there is a benefit to the fear of God, and we've lost this in our society. The Bible instructs, you know, us to have this fear, and if we don't, if we don't follow that, if we don't care, if we're not reading our word, we're not going to have it, and it's going to be just like Vashti. We can lose and be kicked out of the kingdom of God. And so it's a very serious thing. It's no wonder, like I said, that the devil is trying to strip us of the fear of God. Uh, going to Esther here again, then, as we're getting close to wrap up here in verse 22, it says, He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household using his native tongue. So what I find fascinating about this is now, the disobedient church has been kicked out. And what happens? He sends out this message to the whole world. Where has the Bible gone? The Bible has been translated into almost every language on earth. It has gone out to the four corners of the world. Uh, it is everywhere. And what is it? It's an invitation. It's an invitation and a command. An invitation to come to him, a command to obey him, to each one should be ruler over his own household. And so uh, just as the Bible instructs men to do this, uh, we see men not standing up and being the head of their household. They're not leading their family in, in Bible studies and devotions and making sure they're getting to church. The men aren't being the spiritual heads that they're supposed to be. They just want to be dictators, not uh, leaders. And again, that's what this is trying to point us to. It says, listen, this is what you're to do because if the man of the house falls, Satan goes after the man. If you recall my uh, study on, on the Garden of Eden, he went after the woman to get to the man. He wants to get that man to fall. And so we need to protect our garden, protect our home. So, uh, but it goes out to every part of the world, just like God's word has. In Ephesians 5.22, it says, Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. So from Genesis to Revelation, we see this same message. Husbands, you need to step up. You need to be men. Okay, You need to be godly men. You are to protect because you're going to be held accountable. And wives, you need to be helping and, and being that helpmeet that you're supposed to be for your husband. Help him uh, do what he's supposed to do and to stand in the word of God. So with that, um, we're going to kind of close on that part of Esther. We're going to pick up in chapter two next week. Uh, we've just kind of gotten some of the basics out of the way, but I think you're going to continue to see that this is going to be amazing to put everything together into a prophetic picture of Christ in the church in ways that I think will, will really be mind-boggling for you. So uh, just kind of hang in there and come back next week. Well, thank you, Brian. Let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for tonight's teaching and for every, every word 
that came from the breath of your mouth, Lord, inspired by the Holy Spirit in the book of Esther. We thank you, Lord, for each of these verses. And as Brian is showing us, Lord, pointing to Christ um, many years later, we just thank you, Father, for your provision and for your grace upon tonight's study. We thank you for this now. And we lift this all to you. We ask a blessing over Brian as he prepares for next week. And we just thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.